0: Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Light original.
1: I go back with Father Pat. I would not think of disputing who's been on this street longer, him or me. He wins.
2: While I'm at Father Pat's Benita's house on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a man named Pitts arrives.
1: My name is Pitts.
2: I am an artist. Pitts is a longtime resident of the Lower East
1: Side. I love this guy. And if you're me and you're not in jail during 10 years for a crime you didn't do, you would love Father Pat too.
2: He's one of those people who Father Pat has helped throughout the decades while working here.
1: Many community residents, organisations and the Coalition to Support Father Pat Maloney, the radical... Irish priest, whom the government is trying to circumstantially link with the seven and a half million dollar Brinks robbery, or having a night of remembering the thousands of good deeds that the father has done to help this community. Pitts has brought with him a flyer he had printed up in 1994
2: announcing one of the several community support rallies for Father Pat as the priest awaited trial. He's reading that flyer now.
1: The Lower East Side is once again fighting for justice. A miracle is needed. We can bring that miracle to pass if we unite and show the world that we know he was not involved in any robbery. I have some stuff that I want to get off my chest about Father Pat. The US government and everybody else down here was looking at him. I'm not even going to mention some of the filth that they talked about this man. I'm not going to tell you. You know, the US government framed him, came in and said, we're the FBI and you are guilty. So now, what else do you want to know? This is the truth. While he awaited trial, Father Pat
2: was surrounded by supporters, people like Pitts and also by plenty of media drawn to him by the oddity of the story.
3: For the past few weeks, Reverend Patrick Maloney's life has been in limbo.
4: I've been to hell and back. I've been defamed, maligned.
5: The FBI alleges Maloney stored away stolen money in an apartment, money taken from the Brinks facility here in Rochester. Some supporters say if the priest had a lot of money in an apartment, it could have come from donations.
6: He's been a very nice man. I don't believe the charges
7: against him, I really don't.
2: Sam, Charlie McCormick and Father Pat were all charged with conspiring to possess the stolen cash, while former Brinks guard Tom O'Connor was the only one charged with the robbery itself. Sam Miller of course admits now that he did rob the Brinks, but he says Tom O'Connor and Charlie McCormick had nothing to do with it, at any stage. As the trial neared, Sam says he was feeling guilt for his co-accused, people he said had been drawn into a fight for their freedom, through no fault of their own, but rather due to
8: his actions. I was thinking, you know, son, you're feeling guilty he's here. I'm feeling more fucking guilty if this guy Charlie and Tom. Talk to my lawyer. I says, I'm gonna plead fucking guilty. I'm gonna take responsibility. Since you're living in Cloud Cooking land. It doesn't happen like that over here. He says, You plead guilty, yes, that's good. You'll go to fucking jail for your life for life. All you're gonna do is get yourself involved deeper. He says, They've got lawyers, they've all got top lawyers, we all had top lawyers, huh? He says, Stop their lawyers, you get them off. But I was still riddled with guilt. The fact that fucking they were all arrested like, because of my fucking actions, like, you know.
2: At first, Sam felt guilty for Father Pat too. While he maintains the priest knew where the money was from, he had been the one to draw Father Pat into the Brink story.
8: But when you start hearing more before Pat started getting angry. But Sam's
2: sympathy for Father Pat was to be short-lived.
8: When I said to my lawyer, I'm going to go fucking plead guilty, he says, really? He says, right, I'm going to take you over to the courthouse tomorrow. I'm going to show you something. Pick me up, put me over to the courthouse, you know into am in the wee room.
7: Watch this wee movie. So he puts a movie on, turns the light Where's the popcorn? We were watching the tapes together. It was me, the prosecutor, Mr. Miller and his defence attorney. And we're watching the tapes of Mr. Miller accessing the money. And then there's a tape of Father Pat accessing the money without Mr. Miller. And Mr. Miller looks at that and goes... Now, why do you go and do that? So the next thing I see, the fucking corridor.
8: I thinking, what the fuck? They must have been watching this for because you don't know what they've been up to, you know? So the next thing I look, there's this figure walking down. It's far Pat. There's two guys with him. Shopping bags, empty. The next thing you see Pat coming out, he's carrying his, your two men with bags, all fucking carrying the shopping bags. So you still think you're Smith? So you show me again next to north thing, you know? He says he was in there like a tech rabbit. have him cutin' money on his own in the van.
2: The video showing Pat taking the money from the apartment wasn't the only thing changing Sam's feelings towards the priest. As you can probably tell by now, Father Pat is not a shy man. He's a talker. And ahead of his trial, he was doing plenty of talking to the media.
5: Two million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. No, not at all. Where did that money come from? I haven't the faintest idea.
8: Of course Maloney was only in a small among the fucking forces. That's what he's telling the press. we all agreed not to tell the press, talk to the press. I was silence, complete silence. He's running out the fucking door. NBC News front page, his big face. And listen, they're after me. This is a sellout by the government because of my past, being an activist. New York Times magazine. They are after me. Big smile. Wants to a fucking publicity. Here's Tony. What, what's wrong, my guy? I say, Tony, that's, that's who he is.
2: A few weeks before the trial began, Father Pat's first lawyer had to step away from the case. And so Pat was provided with lawyers from the Public Defender's Office.
3: My name is Bill Klaus, C-L-A-U-S-S. At the time, I was an Assistant Federal Public Defender in the Western District of New York, and I represented Father Pat.
2: And when Bill and his team took over the case, they put a stop to Father Pat's media circuit. Uh, During that
3: time, he did make a number of statements to the media. He framed this case as a frame-up and talked about how he, he really was looking forward to testifying and telling his story. I think we convinced him pretty early on. I'd like to think so anyway, that we knew what we were doing. And uh, if we were telling them to shut up, you know, he, he probably ought to shut up. Yeah, no, I thought he was very easy to work with and uh, enjoyable to be around.
2: As the trial got underway on October 7th, 1994, everybody involved had reason to be nervous. For the FBI, it had been a victory to get this far, but not a flawless one. They had never found the remaining $5 million. So it was far from the home run they would hoped for. For them, a guilty verdict now was crucial.
7: It was a major investment for the FBI. Everybody had to come up and testify. So we had the surveillance squad come up. We had the bank robbery squad come up.
2: The four would plead not guilty. And despite the growing divide between Father Pat and Sam, they would not turn on each other throughout the trial.
7: I think they had to be stand-up guys. And they weren't going to turn on each other. And they weren't going to admit anything. And they just, they were going to stonewall it. And if you're going to stonewall it, and you've got three guys, uh, well, four actually, but the kid that had the apartment was kind of like, you know, he was kind of like the appetizer. He was (laughs) off in his own little world. But you got three guys that, um, I can only assume that they got together and said, okay, nobody's going to take a plea, nobody's going to roll on anybody. We're all going to go to trial and let the cards fall where they may and that's what happened. One of the
2: key elements in the investigation and in the initial case that prosecutors wanted to bring to court was the idea that this could all be a grand plan hatched by the provisional IRA with the Rochester Norraid branch effectively working on their behalf. That theory it turned out didn't seem to stack up. In the year and a half since the heist the FBI had turned up no proof of any link with the IRA. And before trial, it was decided there would be no mention of the IRA. For the prosecution, the challenge now was to draw together all of the various strands of the investigation and try to paint a coherent picture for the jury. Dave McKinley is a radio reporter from Rochester, and he covered the trial every day in the courtroom.
6: The prosecution, really, they actually asserted that there were going to be a lot of pieces of evidence from a lot of places that it was going to be largely circumstantial, and that all the pieces are like a mosaic, which when you put together would paint a clear picture of what happened, uh, connect the dots, if you will, Can make that connection between O'Connor and what he claimed to have happened and how that seemed improbable. To paint him as uncooperative with police, to paint him as not forthcoming with information when, as an ex-police officer, he, he should be more forthcoming. He should be able to describe who took him. Uh, He should know more than the average person who supposedly gets kidnapped and taken somewhere and that he's not telling everything he knows. I think that was the the bent on him. The the, the good father there coming in and out of an apartment where the money was eventually found uh, and an FBI agent who testified that we could we could hear them with what appeared to be a money counter in there. And we saw them coming in and out of this apartment several times. It It was that involvement of trying to take, you know, all those little pieces that could be confusing to jurors and put them together as a mosaic that makes a picture.
7: I think we had to lead them down the path and they had to make their own conclusion. I mean, you can't really paint any testimony. I mean, you can't taint it and you can't paint it. But basically, we lay out the facts. I mean, we played a videotape of him carrying the money counter into the stash house. What more do you need? I mean, he's a co-conspirator at that point. For the defense,
2: the four accused would be tried together, but each of them would fight their own case.
7: Well,
6: each one took a little bit of a different approach because they had a different client to defend. But, for example, O'Connor's lawyer, Felix Lapine, went up and said, you won't hear actual proof that Tom O'Connor is guilty of robbing the depot or of having anything, any of the spoils. That was his big point.
2: For Father Pat's lawyers, it was a matter of raising doubt on one key point. This is Bill Klaus. He was Father Pat's lawyer at trial
3: they had a number of ways to connect him with this money. Now, did they have any direct evidence as in he said he knew the money was stolen? No. So really that became the the theory of the defense, which was that they really couldn't prove that Father Maloney, who was not involved in the robbery, and even the prosecution didn't want to say that or couldn't say that, how did he know that this money was stolen? It's a lot of money for sure, but is it a Uh, absolutely uh, irrefutable inference that uh, when you have that kind of money in your possession that you must know it was stolen? Or could he have thought or did he think that the money came from some other source? Uh, And that was the theory of the defense, that they could not prove that Father Maloney knew the money was stolen
2: from the Brinks facility. Father Pat's lawyers argued the money in the safe at Bonita's house was being held there as part of Pat's work with undocumented immigrants. For Sam, well, for Sam it really wasn't looking great. Remember the tyres? Yeah, the tyres that were on the van the night of the robbery, the tyres that left the imprint on the floor of the depot, the tyres that Sam later threw away in a McDonald's car park and yes, the tyres the FBI watched him throw away and then retrieved. Yeah, those tyres. Those tyres.
8: But thing I brought the tires in, I just sunk right down the fucking thing, you know. I And you're trying to keep your face straight but all the evidence is pump, pumping up against you. You're thinking the jury's looking at you every time we see And we seen Miller dump it in the McDonald's, and you're thinking, you're looking at me, don't look at them. Just let on, you're looking at the ceiling you know. It's fucking desperate. It was terrible. The sweat used to just large out of me, like, you know, man. I said, they can see me, they see, they know I'm guilty, like, you know. The tires were
2: actually never conclusively proved to match the markings left in the depot, but it certainly didn't help Sam's case. And there was more evidence that didn't prove Sam's guilt, but also didn't help. Like when the prosecution lawyers revealed that just 90 minutes after the robbery, a collect call had been made from a payphone in Rochester to Sam's home in New York City. As we know at this stage, Father Pat and Sam do not agree at all on how the entire Brinks affair unfolded. But they don't just disagree with each other. They disagree with a lot of what the FBI brought to trial. For Pat, it was things like agents saying they saw him counting money in a car while he waited at a red light.
4: What are you talking about? I'm going to stop at a traffic light and count money in open public? It was a confounded fabrication.
2: Pat also argues that the very first instance of the FBI's interest in him was a fabrication. The first time that Pat came onto the radar of the FBI was when they noticed Sam driving a new car and found it was registered to Father Pat. The FBI presented this as a truck bought with cash when applying for a search warrant. They wrote in their application for the sneak and peek
4: warrant that
2: Father Pat had bought the car with $26,000 in cash. This is not true.
4: Now, without that piece of lie, they never would have gotten their warrant, either the search dives in town or come here
2: Father Pat says he bought the car with a $500 down payment and the rest on credit the truth is somewhere in the middle at trial it emerged that Father Pat had paid $7,000 in cash for the truck with the remainder on credit Pat stands by his point that large parts of the case against him were unreliable or even dishonest
4: my case was an entire fabrication of testiphony not testimony
2: and then there's some evidence that Pat doesn't argue was legitimate in a sense in that it did exist but he argues it actually proved his innocence rather than his guilt. When the FBI raided the apartment they found an old tweed suitcase with about $300,000 inside. In that bag was an Aer name tag and it read Father Patrick Maloney.
4: Well, now there's another one. Do you think for one minute I had a great big old Irish suitcase with my name and label inside it. And I brought it up to Sam to quickly use it to get stuff out of there. Do you think that I'm going to bring in a bank knowing that... I had no clue what was going on with my name on it. I knew my name was on that. You see my logic? And if I thought it was anything to do, I would take it off the label, wouldn't I? I'm not exactly a stupid guy. And I've been around every mansion, every crime from petty larceny to murder and triple murder, including bank robberies, robbers, so.
2: For Sam, what well, he doesn't really argue against the evidence he doesn't buy into the founding point of the FBI's case. If you think all the way back to episode one, we heard from a retired FBI agent named Bill Dillon. Bill has always said, and his colleagues have always supported that claim, that he quickly calculated on that night that if Tom O'Connor was involved in the heist, then it was likely that Sam could
8: have been involved too. This is the mystery. No, this, this, is, the, this is how you speculate retrospectively when you look at how did it all go wrong yes it all went fucking wrong because you fucked up but, but something initial started that so this is what the FBI says get this old guy on old retired American Irish American FBI guy never forget him because I knew he'd been after me for years because he knew I was in, the, in, in America but anyway his story was he was on TV once I found out Tom O'Connor's name brought up it rang a bell and then I went down my memory Tom O'Connor Sam Miller I think it's a little shady so this is what they are saying this is he was the one that started, you know, that's what they're saying. He said, Find Sam Miller, you'll find who done the robbery. All bullshit. Total bullshit. Knew nothing about fucking me and Tom or anything. All, it's all bullshit, you know. But they're coming for something. That's not what happened. I don't know what happened. Something happened to somebody's tied on us. I don't know, more than likely. But I don't want to speculate because I don't know. I don't like speculating, you know. My own had to be.
2: Sam also believes that the initial suspicions towards Tom were based off nothing more than his
8: reputation. There was a lot of hatred for Tom. Tom was involved allegedly in four murders. Okay, I never spent it in jail. Never is it. I'll speculate. So it, it, it created this hatred for him too during the trial, you know. And one of them was a guy called uh, McClinton. His brother had been killed up at the brewery. shot dead. And they said Tom shot him dead because he was seeing Tom's girlfriend, you know. One-on-one on one makes two, you know I mean? That's that's a clear, you know, bullshit. You don't know what the fuck happened. You know, I never asked Tom Tom's the quietest guy and that nicest guy. That us say he couldn't be a serial killer, you know? But that was the whole shit that you kept putting in the newspaper about him, about him, about him, about him, you know, trying to bring him down, like, you know? I said, fucking Scotland, of course, i blame myself, like, at the time, like, you know? But that's who it was. But there was a lot of hatred there for him, you know? Especially with my Clinton family, because they believed he killed Dave, Damien. I mentioned Sam's theory to Bill Dillon when I talked to him.
3: He's entitled to his beliefs, but he's wrong. There was nobody ratting him out or dropping Sammy's name in this at all. It was not brilliance on my part. It was very, very obvious that all the events of that night made it appear to me to see the linkage was quite clear. I have no animosity towards Sam at all. I think he's a a victim in many instances of what happened in Northern Ireland in those years. He suffered terribly a long cash. He suffered terribly from some injustices
2: himself. So I have no animosity towards Sam. He's just wrong in that instance. For the fourth accused, Charlie McCormick, the owner of the apartment, that was a very
7: different story. Probably our worst case was the poor guy that lent Father
0: Pat the apartment. If you didn't think the evidence against Charlie McCormick was weak going into trial, and a lot of people did, it was just destroyed. What little there was at trial, there was a piece of cardboard separating the cash in the apartment in Charlie's apartment, which Charlie again hadn't lived in for months. He'd sublet to Father Pat, and there was a, a fingerprint or a thumbprint on one side of it, which seemed odd. Um, and it was; it was Charlie's. It was Charlie's fingerprint. So obviously, he was moving the the cardboard. Well. As, as his lawyer astutely showed at trial, that had been the backing of a odd piece of art that Charlie had, which makes sense when you're taking the cardboard out versus where you're typically like holding cardboard with two fingers when you're sliding it out of something. You're, that's probably one of the rare times if you're moving cardboard. You're doing it with one finger, slipping this backing out of a, of a print. And that's just what that was. They were able to show that. You know, th- there was this notebook that had numbers that they believed to be uh, added. It was the 7.2 million divided by three, and that's. Uh, it-, it was an old college notebook of Charlie's. There was lots of numbers in there, but th- you know, there happened to be these numbers. There was a letter to the editor that he wrote when he was in college. You know, whatever, I've 15, 20 years before, maybe, in which he talked about how much he loved money. I mean, that became part of the mindset, and it was like, as the lawyer pointed out, said, well. So you're basically telling me, based on this letter to the editor that he wrote in college, that you know, he was planning years ahead to, to thieve millions of dollars. So Charlie, were, other than the connection with Father Pat, th- there was really, there was really nothing against Charlie. I feel sorry for him because his family was every night, every day at the fucking Orcran. Or it? This
8: guy's a school teacher. Never had a parking ticket in his fucking life. Went on a holiday come home to a nightmare. You know fucking
6: years? I I don't want to say this with a certainty that this is what happened but in the federal court system in the United States about 90% or more of cases are resolved through pleas they don't go to trial and the way the federal beast is built is that you make a case if there's more than one person possibly involved by leaning on the someone and leaning on them and maybe offering or suggesting that, you know, we won't put you on trial if you just testify against these other guys here. And maybe they did that with Charlie McCormick. And maybe, it wouldn't surprise me, I don't have any knowledge of it, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. And maybe he didn't. And maybe that's how he ended up on trial, because he wouldn't take some sort of deal.
7: The background on Charlie was a little sketchy, we couldn't really figure out why he would allow Father Pat use the apartment to store money. It was kind of a, a lack of information and kind of like who he, he was kind of a big question mark, who he was, what what was his role? And we figured, well, you know what? He might make a really good witness against them. I think basically the, the prosecutors were like, well, if we charge the guy any any rolls on these other two clowns, you know, um, we'll have a really good cooperating witness. We'll cut him a really good deal. He won't go to jail. And we'll have a, a really good uh, witness on the stand. And uh, it didn't turn out that way. And his involvement was absolutely minimal. So I was kind of glad that he did uh, get the charges dropped against him.
2: The defense knew there were some fundamental questions that they needed to answer convincingly.
3: Father Maloney, before the trial, and when he was represented by another attorney, he made a number of statements to the media um, that essentially were of the, they're trying to frame me, they being the FBI, they being the government, and um, um, I can't wait till I get my day in court to tell my
2: side of the story. But when the time came, Father Pat decided he wouldn't take the stand.
3: I think it became very difficult for us to win the case when Father Maloney decided that he did not want to testify at trial. Now, you don't have to testify. Again, in the American court of law, there's no obligation for the defendant to to testify. And the judge will instruct the jury, as he did in this case, that they're to draw no adverse inference, not to hold it against the defendant if he chooses not to testify. But sometimes facts just cry out for an explanation.
4: Okay, that becomes an extremely delicate thing. All I can say to you was, A, I'm a priest. B, if I did testify, my yes could say something, I know could say more. Could not testify without hurting a lot of people who had nothing whatever to do with anything relating to the case. They might ask me about my immigration work, my legal work, my this work. That worked. Might even have thrown names out at me. I'll tell you frankly, Owen, I would have blown that guy out of the water. I've been around too long. I could have wrapped every question he asked and doubled it back on him.
2: Yeah. Tom O'Connor, however, did take the stand. Here's Dave McKinley again, a radio reporter who covered the trial.
6: Tom O'Connor, if he was less than forthcoming with information when he was interviewed by police the night of the robbery, and in the days that followed, uh, he was just as forthcoming, I remember, in his testimony. I'll use the term, he seemed evasive. I don't remember. I I don't understand the question. And it was quite frustrating, as I recall, uh, to the prosecutors who were trying to ask him questions. You know, he said he he tried to help the police solve the crime when he spoke to them uh, from his hospital bed after he was claimed to be kidnapped, but uh, said that one of the two Rochester police officers who came to speak to him was drunk, <laughs> he thought. He said uh, he said uh, that detective and his partner uh, actually began fighting in front of him, and so he ended the interview because these guys didn't seem like they had it together. You know, the government wanted to know, why, why did you offer so little help? after that why why didn't you talk to another police investigator why did you shut down and he said you know i needed time to rest again the prosecutors said that an ex cop like tom o'connor would have made the effort to help the police he 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 more than the uh, average civilian would know how important that was and that he didn't because he had something to hide he he kind of had this confused act about him on the stand it, you know for an ex cop he, he didn't and didn't seem very familiar with how this worked. So it was really hard to to pin him. I mean, it, it I think it was easy to say, gee, he must've been the inside man because he was there and he's the one they chose to kidnap. And he's the one who knows this other guy who we've got the goods on pretty good, this Sammy Miller. So <laughs> there must be something there. Dave still has his notes from the trial.
2: Here's how he reported this at the time.
6: For more than 10 hours over three days, O'Connor answered questions, mostly under cross examination by prosecutor Chris Piscaglia. Most times, O'Connor appeared confused. Piscaglia is seemingly frustrated by the defendant's inability to answer questions directly. While the government's case against O'Connor is largely circumstantial, jurors will have to weigh whether he appears credible. Yeah, so that was his deal. Yeah, 10 hours over three days. And a lot of nothing. A lot of, uh, what? Can you repeat the question? I I, I don't understand. You know, that sort of thing.
2: For the FBI, Tom O'Connor's testimony was frustrating. But the thing is, they didn't really have anything else they could do. Because despite Tom being their prime suspect, when it came down to it, they had no concrete evidence against him. In all the time investigating him, They had seen plenty of behaviour that didn't really tally with the idea of him being an innocent man. And that's what they told the jury. But hard, irrefutable evidence, not a single bit of it.
7: We weren't able to do a search warrant on his house. We didn't have enough probable cause to hit his house with a search warrant, so... Oh well. We did have him spending money on his house. He spent a lot of money improving his house. So we put a bunch of contractors on the stand... And uh, they all got paid in cash. Uh, And his defence was he put one of his buddies on the stand and say that, oh, yeah, I lent that money to Mr. O'Connor for all those improvements that you guys talked about. No, that was a loan. I loaned him the money.
2: At the midway point in the trial, the prosecution rested. They had made their case, piecing together what was a largely circumstantial set of facts but a set of facts that were hard for Father Pat and Sam to argue against. It's customary in trials for the defence to argue that the whole thing be thrown out at the halfway point. They'll typically say there's not enough evidence to warrant continuing. It's often a pretty procedural matter, it's usually dismissed. But this time, Father Pat's defence lawyers stumbled upon an idea that might not get the trial scrapped, but could drastically change the picture. The money had been found in New York City, but the trial was taking place in Rochester which was western New York. And so they argued the Rochester court could not try the charge of conspiracy as there was nothing to link Father Pat and Sam to Rochester. And if the court couldn't do that, then things would be looking a lot better for Sam and Pat.
8: Well, Maloney's lawyers had come up with this fucking uh, idea. They arrested you in New York, but they brought you up to Rochester for trial. They sort of stunned the trial down in New York. So the judge was not a dilemma like he knew... You knew, like, this fucking guy here, he's as guilty as fucking hell. You know, the priest is guilty as hell, like, you know, cut a long story short, went back over the next day. Just looked at says, Yes, yes, yes. A lot of there's a lot of things here, right? But I can't collapse this trial because there's so much strong circumstantial evidence, right? But your civil rights were violated. And therefore I have to drop all the cases except for the money, maximum five years. Fucking you imagine. Where would you get that? Where would you get that? After being sent to jail here for nothing, you know? Was that God saying, all right, there, making it off for you now, you know? When it came to the defence, the
2: arguments were pretty straightforward. Sam's lawyers obviously had the toughest task, but they argued that it was not as watertight a case as it seemed. Tom's lawyers basically said, where's the proof? Charlie's lawyers argued the whole thing was just ridiculous. Father Pat's team pushed another angle. And it's the one you've heard him mention a few times now. That he thought it was all casino money in that apartment. Which may seem logical. But here's the thing about that. Father Pat's lawyers only started pushing that line several weeks into the trial. It was not in their opening statements to the court. Pat's lawyers only heard about Sam's work in the casinos during the trial. And only then did they introduce that argument. That's not to say Father Pat didn't suspect the money was from casinos but he did not argue it from the outset. Beyond that, Father Pat's team pushed a further angle, the good character defence.
3: We certainly, from a defence point of view, tried to portray Father Pat accurately. We had witnesses come and talk about his many, many good works, his dedication to the poor and his community, and the fact that he was known far and wide as a really good man and a giving man and not involved in thievery. And that is, you know, the so-called good character defence that's often used in, in criminal cases.
4: There was a preponderance of data went to the court on my behalf, which the judge completely ignored. They just had to get somebody.
2: The public support for Pat and the image of him as a noble man wrongly accused was not sitting well with Sam.
8: Making himself out as pure martyr, then once. Worry about Charlie's family. Charlie himself, poor man, fucking withering there in front of us, you know? Didn't give a fuck. But he's a martyr. Then the fucking nuns send me all these letters. You're going to hell. No, no, I was just all orchestrated by him, you know?
2: The trial had gone on for almost two months by the time the jury retired to consider their verdict. They would deliberate for 20 hours.
5: As jury foreman Darlene Welch read the verdicts, relief from the family of Thomas O'Connor accused of being the inside man. Charles McCormick acquitted was relieved to go free, but angry nonetheless.
1: I think it's a real shame that this actually ever occurred. It really makes me very sad that power can be abused in such a manner.
5: Few believed a jury would actually convict a priest. Father Patrick Maloney was one of the defendants that jurors did not believe. The gentlemanly priest, a chatty, polite man, now in shackles. He and Samuel Miller were let out after the verdict, convicted as co-conspirators in the 7.4 million dollar Brinks heist. Upon leaving for the county lockup, the Melkite priest offered an angry and drastic response.
0: Father, you going on a hunger strike?
1: Absolutely. Why? American justice is laid low.
2: Tom O'Connor and Charlie McCormack both walked free while Sam and Father Pat faced prison time. Both had been convicted of possessing the stolen money but the dropping of the conspiracy charge over the venue argument had spared them a major conviction. Nobody was found guilty on the charge of robbing the Brinks.
4: I knew from the beginning I was going to be found guilty. There was 11 women and one man, all, with all due respect to them, country folk, from Elmira, Rochester. They hadn't a clue what an inner city priest would be like.
2: But if you had been tried in New York, your, your tri- sentence could have been much heavier.
4: It could have been, but however, I don't believe I'd ever been, have been convicted in New York. Ever. People are too sophisticated. They wouldn't have bought into the crap, the stuff that some of the government guys went up with.
2: You heard a moment ago the news clip from the day of the verdict, when Father Pat told reporters he was going on hunger strike. During Sam's time in prison in Long Kesh, his fellow IRA prisoners went on hunger strike, with 10 of them dying as a result. So to hear Pat say that as they walked away from the courthouse when, as Sam saw it, Pat was guilty and really had no cause for complaint, that did not sit well with Sam.
8: I said, Pat, you're insulting people to hunger strike. You're fucking that innocent. He said, don't you talk to me. Don't you talk to me. I said, I'm not talking I said, But you'll be making a fool of yourself. Somebody went on the cameras were all there, all around the whole America. Hunger strike tomorrow. Two days later, he's eating his breakfast.
2: When you were convicted, you threatened to go on this strike.
4: Ah, uh, I did, and I would have, except for the abbot of Geneseo, a famous psychiatrist and uh, lawyer, came to see me, and he said, "Father Pat, I would ask you not to, because it'll worry your family, it will worry me, many, many other people, and he said it'll only keep prolonged, a lot of trouble, and for and first of all, he said they'll force feed you."
2: Do you regret saying
4: that? No. No? I would have. Hunger strike has always been a very, very legitimate way of righting a wrong. In ancient Ireland, in the Hebrew culture, a man wrongly accused could stand and, and solve himself in front of the home of the accuser who falsely accused him.
2: The pair would be sentenced at a later date, but before that there was a bail hearing held for Father Pat.
4: I was called back in again for a, a bail hearing, and they wanted a million dollars cash, cash. And this is a week before Christmas. And the judge looks down and he said, well, Father Maloney, a um, million dollars cash between now and Christmas, and Christmas is the end of the week. It would take a miracle to get that kind of money and I smiled, the biggest smile I could muster up and joy in my eyes I said yes Your Honour I said but that's the business we're in we're in the business of miracles well this was on a Tuesday by Wednesday and Thursday my brother John, God bless him and all the brothers they all came together they got 1.3 million in cash
2: the judge passed down sentences of 51 months imprisonment for Father Pat and five years for Sam.
4: Of course, me, it
8: just fucking says, uh, you're up your eyeballs. You deserve what you get. You know, and you give me five years, and I was
1: like, well, I'd help
7: you to ask a thing, you know? <laughs> but come on, five years? Not bad oh, for fine. seven million, you know? And especially Mr. Miller. I mean, he could do five years standing on his head. I mean, after what he had been through. He probably thought that the Monroe County Jail was like the Hyatt Regency compared to Long Cash.
2: I mentioned before in this series how Paul Hawkins talks about Sam with a kind of begrudging respect, and I think what we just heard there is a pretty good example of it. Over the course of the trial, a lot of the law enforcement officials and others just generally around the trial seemed to grow to have respect for Sam.
8: Afterwards in the court and all the sent word to me, said well, none but respect for you. You won't open your mouth, stick your fucking respect up there, holy.
2: For Father Pat, he was entering a world away from his life in New York City. Well, for Sam, it was a return to a life of incarceration. But it wasn't the end of the road for the Brink story. Because while Sam had been admired for his stoic silence during trial, that wasn't going to last forever. And one day, Sam would tell his version of events. But in some ways, it will bring about more questions than answers.
4: Next, on Unusual Suspects. they put me into the belly of the beast... And I was able to fraternize with everybody from mur- Murder Incorporated to Mafiosas into every fraudster, gangster, con artist you might have ever met. It was a fabulous experience.
8: All of a sudden I thought, you know, we have done it. This is a fucking perfect fucking crime, you know. And next thing we turn on the radio, the next thing I say there's been a, an armed robbery at the fucking Brinkstaple. And the next thing we're hearing, the fucking helicopters. And you're driving out thinking, oh yeah, I've done it. I never watched enough Colombo. If I enough Colombo. I wouldn't have done it, but I left the tire track.
4: I don't know. I wouldn't believe what Sam would say.
8: The five million I've never found.
4: Mm-hmm. Exactly, never found.
8: But uh, it's a big question, where's the money?
2: Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart.
6: Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Out original.